We are wrapping up our third season of preaching through the book of Acts. Um, there's a painting in my office entitled Asylum um, because the church as it was coming together is such a fascinating assortment of people that probably would not choose each other. Actually, I'm certain of it. If you look especially at the Philippian church, a young woman who had been possessed and a Philippian jailer, which means a professional soldier, and Lydia, a foreign woman who was wealthy in business, that started that church. These three people would not have chosen to be friends with one another. The painting is um, about the church that is not only a group of folks that would not choose each other, but also is to be a safe and a good place in a bent and a broken world. We'll see that a little bit as I read Acts chapter 28 in just a moment, and yet Acts chapter 28 as the last chapter in the book is odd. It does not seem to come to a conclusion in the way that most of the books that we read or movies that we watch come to a conclusion, and there's a reason for that. Those of you that know me know that it's going to be challenging for me to do what I'm about to do, which is read the whole chapter without saying anything on the side, but I'm going to do it. And I'd invite you to join me, and the text is long this morning, and um, perhaps let your eyes wander around or close them, perhaps follow along in your Bible or write some notes as you're, as you're listening to the text read, but it's good to hear it in addition to read it. The text was meant to be read aloud, and so I'm going to go through Acts chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up, Or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that his father lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puccioli, There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, 
because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Oh, it getting through it without <laughs> stopping? Thank you. Joseph, how'd I do? Joseph's an elder here, and he runs our soundboard, so he's acquainted with how challenging it can be for me to not stop. This is, what an interesting chapter. Paul interacts with a snake and some native people. The actual word there is barbarian, which was not a pejorative term for them. I'll talk about that in a minute. He deals with Christians and Jews, and all the while brought up twice in this chapter and throughout the rest of the book, telling them about the kingdom. And the more I study the book of Acts, the more frustrated I am with the things that Luke is concerned about and the thing he's not cons- things he's not concerned about. And I trust the Holy Spirit with the words that we have in the scriptures, but why do we need to know as much about the snake and we don't get as much of Paul's argument of like morning to evening? He talks to them about the kingdom and the Old Testament and Moses and the prophets. We get a sentence about that. But they were waiting for Paul to swell up and die. Like we get more explanation about that. And one of the reasons that I bring that up is not only because that was on my mind as I was reading the text, but there's a reason that that Luke does this. There's a reason that he focuses on some things and not others. And some of that is because he was a physician and some is, is writing style, but it's also to guide us into an understanding of the early church and the New Testament church. And this was in the Holy Spirit's hands because Luke would not have believed it if you had explained to him that 2,000 years later we'd be reading his two books, the Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. He would have thought Jesus would have returned by then. But some of the things that he captures that I don't know if they were, uh, if your mind grabbed onto them quickly or not, it was my second or third reading. The island of Malta, there's been uh, archaeology that supports Paul, uh, Luke's description of how the island was governed. Did you catch that? The leading man, Publius, and the way that uh, they're called barbarians, what that meant, by the way, was just non-Greek. So just like today, P- 
people come up with shorthand to describe those that are in their nation or ethnicity and those that are not. And, and this wasn't a negative term. It was simply a statement that these are the people that lived here and they weren't Greek. Malta, chief, and barbarian are all things that have been validated by archaeology about in the last 200 years. And I know that I talk about archaeology more than some of you like, although not nearly as much as some of others of you would like. Some of you love when I talk about archaeology. And as I was preparing this, it occurs to me that if I were preaching in the 18th century, I wouldn't have any of that archaeological information. But I also wouldn't have the negative New Testament scholarship. So in the, in the 19th and especially the 20th century, threads of scholarship, what I would call a, a, a hermeneutic of suspicion, hermeneutic is interpretive scheme, began, and these are people that study the scriptures, but their conclusions are that the scriptures are not reliable. And here's why I'm talking about this. First of all, because we need to remember that these texts have been passed along faithfully, but also that they're verified historically and archaeologically. And if you think that doesn't matter, in our high schools and in colleges, not everywhere, I went to a state school and was taught very responsibly how to think about the text from a non-Christian standpoint and still responsible. But in many colleges and in many high schools, they're taught that Christianity is myth. And I can't prove to you that Paul got bit by a viper and then didn't die and that that was a miracle. But I can prove to you historically and archaeologically that Malta was governed exactly the way that Luke describes. And it is evidenced in the first and second century, archaeologically and historically, that Romans and Greeks talked about non-Greeks as barbarians. And Malta was physically the way that it's described here. And so that might seem beside the point. That's not... I'm not helping us grapple with Paul's message about the kingdom, but I am reminding us that the text is uh, intact, that these witnesses faithfully passed it along, and as best we can tell, it's incredibly trustworthy. If you read the book of Acts in its entirety, you'll notice, if you're uh, a little more historically inclined, that there were actually dozens of different types of government and Luke gets it spot on every time and another thing is happening here that I just going to talk about for a second Paul is allowed to uh, or given power to perform a couple of miracles at least the healing of diseases if in the viper you know we don't Luke doesn't say he examined it as a viper I don't know enough about medicine to say that that's for sure a miracle, but, but the text here presents him as being able to heal diseases on the island. And a number of questions come up in our mind when miracles occur in the text. And one of them, I hope, is how was Paul able to do this and why? And the reason is very similar to the reason that Jesus performed miracles. Jesus was able to perform miracles because he was Jesus, but the purpose of the miracles was to further enlighten the message that he was preaching. Every time Jesus healed or performed a miracle or, produ- or uh, proved that he had power over nature, it was to support what he was saying. Similarly with Paul. Now, if you're like me, then you wonder, why don't we see miracles today? And I think the reason is, first of all, there are so many people that say 
that they are Jesus' people. And then they tie that message to miracles. And then that message is tied to, and send me some money. And so I believe one of the things the Holy Spirit's doing in the 21st century is guarding us from those evil teachers. There are good televangelists. My grandfather, who I respect as much as any man I've ever met, came to Christ through televangelism. I'm thankful for it. But there are those that tie the gospel of Jesus to health and wealth, and that is evil and untrue. And so while your prayers have power, and I believe have actually done work, they have causality in the world, I believe we've actually all experienced some measure of miracle. Our interpretive understanding of that is hidden from us by the Holy Spirit, not only because of bad teachers, but also because, let's be honest, our envy and resentment and interpretation could not handle it if we knew the power of our prayers, right? We would immediately wonder why others weren't answered. And so the Lord protects us from that because of the limits that we have. So Paul handles snakes, and then he ends up interacting with Christians. And this part of, if you're familiar with the geography of Italy, which I wasn't until I studied this, you know Luke is speeding up here quite a bit. So Puccioli is 130 miles from Rome. The Forum is 40 miles from Rome, and the Three Taverns is 12 miles from Rome. So in a handful of words, Luke just summarizes a large part of the trip. And I think the re- and so you see what Luke does and doesn't care about. So he, when he says, and so we came to Rome, you'd think I'd be used to that after six summers, like things fall from the trees. When he says, and so we came to Rome, he's, he's summarizing a large section, but what's happening is, as a writer and as a companion to Paul, Luke is so encouraged that Christians, this, this, this faith is but 30 years old at this point, Christians are coming from all over Italy to meet with them and to encourage them. It was about three years prior to this chapter in the Bible that Paul wrote the book of Romans, and I was looking at chapter 16 throughout the week and this morning, and he references dozens of people that he had heard about through other evangelists and other pastors and house churches. And these are the people that are coming to meet with Paul and with Luke. And I tried to read it slowly, but I hope you caught that. When all the Christians come and meet with them, Paul thanked God and what? Took courage. I hope that you worship out of a sense of joy and desire to honor God and make much of Him. I also hope that when you're here, you are able to take courage. I know some of you, and I know some of your stories, and I know what it's like to be a 42-year-old human that's gone through some things, and we need to be able to take courage. We need to learn how to take courage, and one of the provisions for us to take courage and then move into our world is through corporate worship and through community, through being prayed for by friends in a large setting and in small, through our worship. That's what's happening with Paul. I am so fond of his letters, I can think of him as a super Christian. The only way that he took courage was by somehow explaining that he needed to take courage, that he was tired. This is his fourth shipwreck. He's been beaten He's been arrested unjustly. 
and he was tired and afraid. And being with other followers of Jesus gave him courage. I hope and pray that it does for you also. I know that church is a challenging place. It is also where we take courage because of the promises of God. And then they begin to speak with uh, the Jewish men and women, or I think just men, in and around Rome, and they talk about how this sect is spoken about everywhere. And Paul says to them, because of the hope of Israel, I wear this chain. And he's not speaking metaphorically. He's literally wearing a chain. Remember a couple of chapters ago, and I, I really wanted to talk about this, though some of you caught it in the reading of the text. Paul's getting really excited when he's talking before Festus and um, Bernice and Agrippa. And he says, I wish everyone were like me. And he has chains around his wrists. And I don't, we don't know if he raised his hands up, but he says, I wish everyone were like me, meaning a follower of Christ, except for these chains. I mean, not everybody should have chains on their wrists anyway. So he's still wearing them, and he's speaking with them about his own story, the fact that he's a Jewish man both by religion and by race, and that now as a Jewish man, he's a follower of Christ. Is Bill Thompson here? What kind of plane is that? Okay, sorry to put you on the spot. I almost never sip my coffee when I'm up here, but then I just decided to give us all a minute. So Paul is on the island of Malta, and then he meets with all these followers of Jesus, and then with Jewish men of, the, of Rome who had not heard of him, but had heard of Christianity, and they come. And this is, there are a number of speeches in the book of Acts and a number of sermons, though not as many as we might think, as this, due to the fact, or not as many as we might think, knowing that the book of Acts is the story of the rise of Christianity, despite internal fighting and external persecution, the story continues to grow, and men and women trust Christ. But there are a number of speeches, and this is one I would like to know more about. I want to know more, even though we have the book of Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians, Paul expounding on these things in those letters. I would like to know what he said morning to evening, explaining Jesus in light of the teachings of Moses. That's the first five books of the scriptures, the prophets. That's um, a number of Old Testament books. And these men are eminently reasonable. Some of them come to believe some of what Paul says. Many of them are upset by his quoting of Isaiah. They're aware that he's been spoken against, but they listen to him. Some believed and no doubt were some of the people that came back to Paul over the two years that he was in Rome. And yet what's challenging is Paul is saying Jesus is Lord and that that takes full precedence over every other allegiance. Some of Jesus' most challenging teachings are that we must hate our father and mother. And by hate, he doesn't mean hate the way you and I say hate. Did he hate his mother actively? No. Did he ask John to? No, he asked John to take care of her when he was on the cross. But he taught that multiple times in multiple ways so that we might learn that allegiance to him is first and actually only. Similarly, that's why this, this arguing 
with the Jews was so challenging. Because Paul is saying, in light of the resurrection and the teachings of Moses and the prophets, now you're a follower of Jesus if you follow all that line of thinking. Now you're a follower of Jesus and your race and your ethnicity and your country of origin and your family of origin, those are all in a secondary place in terms of allegiance. That's why it was so challenging. That's why they talked about it from morning to the afternoon. And that's what is so challenging to us. I recently heard a number of people expound pretty eloquently about the importance of family first. Nope. I see all over the world people saying us first in terms of the people born in this country and not others. Nope. Not talking about where you come down politically. I'm talking about allegiance to Jesus. It is first and foremost and on a separate plane than these other things. And it's not that those things don't matter. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about allegiance to the one and only true God. And that's what Paul was talking about to the Jews and saying the way to be faithful is to now follow Jesus. And still, he still identified as Jewish and as a follower of Christ. And that's why he opens his letters as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And then later he'll talk about his story and where he's from and all those things that matter but are secondary to allegiance to Jesus. And all the while he's explaining, it's referenced twice in the text, the kingdom. And three years before this chapter of Acts happened chronologically, he wrote a letter to the Romans. And in that letter, in chapter 14, he defined the kingdom as righteousness, joy, and peace. And do you know that that's what the gospel has already purchased for you? That in this very moment we're leaning into and learning to enjoy? The kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace. Joy is contentment in every circumstance. It doesn't mean you feel bubbly in every circumstance. But it means you actually have a contentment that is unshakable because of the promises of God, because of his father heart, because of the work Jesus did on your behalf, and because you have the Holy Spirit. Peace is is knowing it is Jesus' work and not ours who saves. And so peace means we don't strive anymore. Striving is a word that is sometimes positive and sometimes negative in the way that we talk about it, but scripturally there is no striving towards God. None. It's done. It's finished. It's entirely accomplished by Jesus, which is why it's called faith and trust, and then following And righteousness is our response to his love. How then do we live? We follow because of how much he loved us. And those things, by the way, that I talked about that are secondary in allegiance, a deep secondary, they're all given back to us. They're reordered and given back to us in ways we can enjoy. Parents, if you think that family is first, you will end up idolizing your child and it will actually harm your relationship. Whereas if Jesus is first, you're given back your relationship with your child, and this is especially true if they're an adult, 
by letting them go because Jesus is Lord, not your child. Those of you that love your country, whether it's the United States or a different one, when Jesus is Lord, that love is purified and not distorted by it being secondary. Those of you that love your vocation, your vocation would be a terrible Lord. Though I'm grateful for those of you that love what you do. And in giving allegiance to Jesus, our other affections are given back to us in their right size. What Paul was saying to the men and women of Malta, what he was saying to the Christians that met him on the road to Rome, what he was saying to the Jews that joined him in house arrest, is that, not that they were arrested, but he was arrested and they came to visit him. You know what I'm saying, right? Right. There is a flourishing life There is peace for your heart. There is joy that's unassailable. And there is righteousness. How then shall we live? And it is found in trusting Christ as Lord and in following Him. And the reason that Luke leaves us hanging compared to other movies and books is because now it's on us to continue trusting to continue reasoning with people, utilizing the scripture, to continue to take courage in worshiping with one another. In Acts chapter 8, Philip leads an Ethiopian man to faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit had already been pursuing him. And there's a river, and the Ethiopian man says, can I be baptized? And they don't, you don't even hear what Philip says. He, just, he's baptized. In Acts chapter 16, there are two different Incidents, one of Lydia, who was already interested in God. The Holy Spirit had already been pursuing her. Then she meets with Paul and with Barnabas. She comes to faith, and she's baptized. In Acts chapter 16, later, the Philippian jailer has the same experience. And so how we're going to proceed from here is we're going to sing, but I'm not going to pray, and I'm not going to give a benediction, because I want you all, after we sing, to go down to our baptismal, Because four followers of Jesus are going to speak a little bit about their faith. And we will all take courage and encouragement from their words and from the sacrament. 